This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. There's a conventional modern Thomistic account of faith and reason that would proceed in three steps. First, sketch St. Thomas's general theory of knowledge, especially anticipating skeptical concerns with some account of Aquinas's confident epistemological realism or the ability of reason to grasp the natures of things. Then, as a special case of this capacity to know in general, proceed to show how truths about God's existence and nature can be known using rational argument. And then finally, explain the relationship between faith and reason in terms of the apologetic or evangelistic uses of rational argument. Reason can prove some truths about God and even the distinctive mysteries of Christian faith, which are beyond rational demonstration, doctrines such as the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement, and Resurrection, can still be rationally defended against any and all philosophical objection. While this approach is legitimately Thomistic, such a conventional presentation of faith and reason leaves out some important dimensions of the reasonableness of belief in God, according to Aquinas. It leaves the impression that for Aquinas, the reasonableness of theistic belief in general is something dependent on philosophical proof. It also suggests that specifically Christian faith is reasonable only insofar as it can be philosophically defended from criticism, as if the mysteries of faith, insofar as they go beyond what is rationally demonstrable, are not reasonable. What I want to emphasize in this talk, however, is how Aquinas's conception of reasonable belief includes both what is much less than and what is much more than strictly demonstrative proofs or philosophical argumentation. There are ways in which, without depending on rational argument at all, belief in God is reasonable. There are ways that philosophical arguments have important religious value beyond their capacity to prove truths or refute falsehoods. And there are ways in which supernatural faith is reasonable, not only as being logically compatible with rational argument, but as fulfilling our rational nature in a way that rational argument alone never could. My strategy then is to turn the conventional presentation of Aquinas on its head. In fact, to subvert each of its three parts. Here is my plan. First, as to knowledge in general, rather than present Aquinas as a confident realist, I will show his awareness of the challenges to and limits of knowledge, his profound epistemic humility. We cannot ignore the fact that for Aquinas, there is much that we do not and cannot know, despite common attempts to marshal Aquinas's realist confidence against skepticism, Aquinas could be categorized as a kind of skeptic himself. Second, on the rationality of belief in God, instead of emphasizing philosophical proof, I will talk about something more basic, what Aquinas thinks are more normal, pre-philosophical, but naturally reasonable paths to knowing God. While Aquinas does think truths about God's existence and nature can be known by rational demonstration, such arguments are not the only way in which Aquinas thinks people normally, that is to say by their own lights and mundane powers and without the assistance of supernatural grace, come to know about God. Third, I will show how for Aquinas, even where there is room for rational theological proofs, these have significance beyond their power to demonstrate their conclusions. Demonstrative philosophical arguments about the existence and nature of God might, in limited circumstances, have persuasive or apologetic power over atheists and agnostics. But they also have an effect on the theistic believer who formulates and reflects on these arguments and contemplates their conclusions. Philosophical demonstrations about the existence and nature of God help us to acquire and to purify our concepts of God. More than offering a path from ignorance to certainty, they help to deepen wisdom and cultivate wonder, disposing us to better appreciate truths of Christian faith as both reasonable and mysterious. So that's my plan. 
And part one is Aquinas on the Limits of Knowledge. It's common to sketch the history of modern philosophy as progressing through a series of attempts to overcome or make peace with Descartes' skepticism. Descartes called into question the ability of our mind to grasp any reality outside of itself. His own rationalism seemed an unsatisfactory solution, and subsequent ventures in empiricism, transcendental idealism, romanticism, and phenomenology all make sense as alternative strategies for defending knowledge in the wake of Cartesian doubt. In this context, some modern Thomists have presented Aquinas as providing his own response to the skeptical challenge. His solution to the problem of knowledge, sometimes called realism, holds that the world is constituted and organized by intelligible actualizing principles or forms, and that the human soul is specifically fit to grasp these forms. The word form in this context is trying to capture an active mode of being or cause, something that makes something to be characterized or determined in some way. If things in the world have causes making them to be what they are, we can know about those things to the extent that those causes or forms are somehow impressed on or received into our cognition. Aquinas's realism holds that the mind is, by its nature, and of course contingent on the right conditions, suited to receive the forms of things so that cognition is the known and knower unified. However, part of Aquinas's conception of cognition in terms of reception of forms is that there are different modes of form and that forms are received according to the mode of being of the receiver. So while it is appropriate to describe Aquinas as a defender of the possibility of knowledge, we must also remember that the mode of the human mind receiving the various modes of actualizing powers in the world faces a number of intrinsic obstacles and limits, a consequence of which is the prevalence of ignorance. There are different kinds of objects that we might want to know about. Sensible objects, social facts, political probabilities, historical events, psychological states, military strategies, to name a few. The constitution of the human mind is such that it is not always possible or easy to access or receive the actualizing powers of such disparate objects. And even when it is possible, knowledge of some things might be obtained only in a limited way and only with a great deal of help. Knowing geometry is different than knowing veterinary science. Moral knowledge differs from culinary knowledge and so on. Knowledge is a common term then for something that is realized in different ways. It is domain specific. Yves Simone appropriately called St. Thomas's position epistemological pluralism. In the broadest sense, we can even count sensation as a mode of knowing or cognizing for particular physical things. With my eyes, I see my cat Sophie on the windowsill. By contrast, I intellectually grasp abstracted generalizations about that sensible thing. For instance, that Sophie is a cat or that cats are mammals. It is only about intelligible objects, not sensible objects, that we can properly have scientific knowledge with certainty and demonstrability. Even so, limiting ourselves to properly demonstrative knowledge, we accept that there are levels of certitude in the sciences because there are different kinds of causes in the things we want to know and these can be more or less dependent on other causes and more or less abstractable from the things that they inform. So within the sciences, there are levels of certainty and there can be no properly scientific knowledge at all for whole realms of reality that we care about. For instance, wherever there is no essential or necessary cause to be known. Wherever there is randomness or chance or what Aquinas would describe as involving fortune, there cannot be scientific knowledge in the strictest sense. An obvious realm of contingency is anything involving human affairs. Human action is never entirely predictable, even to the agent before choosing the action. And Aquinas, again following Aristotle, warns against seeking certainty in a science of human activity. Part of reasonableness, then, is accepting ignorance and degrees of uncertainty. 
Aquinas, following Aristotle, counsels against expecting more certainty than is appropriate in any given domain. This is from his commentary on the Nicomachean Ethics. The method of manifesting truth in any science ought to be suitable to the subject matter of that science. Certitude cannot be found, nor should it be sought in the same degree in all discussions where we reason about anything. The educated man ought not to look for greater nor be satisfied with less certitude than is appropriate to the subject under discussion. It seems an equal fault to allow a mathematician to use rhetorical arguments and to demand from a rhetorician conclusive demonstrations such as a mathematician should give. Mistakes happen, Aquinas continues, because the method appropriate to the matter is not considered. Mathematics is concerned with matter in which perfect certitude is found. Rhetoric, however, deals with political matter where there is a multiplicity of variation. Human reasoning is in fact adapted to different modes, many more common than formal logical argument. The passage I just quoted treats rhetoric as an appropriate mode of inquiry, a path to awareness of truth in practical matters political or moral. Along with rhetoric, Aquinas also treats dialectical reasoning, which is indirect and probable, investigative, as opposed to systematic, demonstrative, and certain, as well as poetry as appropriate modes of reasoning, inquiry, or persuasion for some domains. These non-scientific modes of reasoning do not establish strict knowledge, but by appealing to imagination and appetite, they form beliefs, opinions, and even attractions and prejudices that are rightly oriented and true. For the poet's task is to lead us to something virtuous by some excellent description, Aquinas says. This is the task of any leader, not only to discern the best course of action, but to persuade others to follow it. Leadership requires judging and helping others to judge causes in a variety of practical matters, difficult to discern, and not absolutely certain, even in the best cases. In theoretical matters, the highest or first principles are at once most certain when grasped, but also the most difficult to reach. These first causes sought in metaphysics or natural theology are most necessary and most few but they are also the most removed from what is familiar to us, most separated from our embodied experience. Even a purely spiritual creature, unencumbered by any body, that is, an angel, must face limits to knowledge. But human beings, as embodied and social beings, are even farther removed from the first principles of reality. In a political work on kingship, Aquinas describes the appropriateness of human knowledge being dependent on our condition as physical and social beings. And here's another passage from Aquinas. <clears throat> All other animals are able to discern by inborn skill what is useful and what is injurious, even as the sheep naturally regards the wolf as his enemy. Some animals also recognize by natural skill certain medicinal herbs and other things necessary for their life. Man, on the contrary, has a natural knowledge of the things which are essential for his life only in a general fashion, inasmuch as he is able to attain knowledge of the particular things necessary for human life by reasoning from natural principles. Continuing with Aquinas, but it is not possible for one man to arrive at a knowledge of all these things by his own individual reason. It is therefore necessary for man to live in a multitude so that each one may assist his fellows and different men may be occupied in seeking by their reason to make different discoveries, one, for example, in medicine, one in this and another in that. So to summarize, Aquinas' understanding of human knowledge in general does affirm that knowledge is possible, but it also provides principled reasons an account of the causes why knowledge is limited and that accepting ignorance is part of reasonable judgment. Specifically, some domains by their nature do not admit of any knowledge at all. Some domains by their nature only admit of knowledge in a very limited or attenuated way. Even in those domains where knowledge is possible, it may be very difficult and error prone. 
And finally, because our knowledge is, because of our limited embodied social nature, some truths may reach our intellectual awareness through means other than rational argument, including, but not limited to instinct, imagination, and socialization. So now to the second main part of the paper, normal knowledge of God. Aquinas does think that there is such a thing as theological science and that truths about God can be known with certainty. And yet commonly when introducing the science, he warns of its difficulty and makes clear that strictly speaking, we cannot know God. That is to say, the divine nature is such as not to be something that a human intellect is fit to receive. Quoting from Aquinas, that there are certain truths about God that totally surpass man's ability appears with the greatest evidence. It is necessary that the way in which we understand the substance of a thing determines the way in which we know what belongs to it. The human intellect is not able to reach a comprehension of the divine substance through its natural power. Despite this, Aquinas believes that it is possible for human beings to know truths about God through rational inquiry, but here too he typically warns about the possibility of error and uncertainty. So again, from quoting from the Summa Contra Gentiles, he summarizes some of the sources of error in a science of God. The investigation of the human reason for the most part has falsity present within it, due partly to the weakness of our intellect in judgment and partly to the admixture of images. And he continues that even with what can be demonstrated, there is sometimes mingled something that is false, which people believe to be demonstrated, but which is rather asserted on the basis of some probable or sophistical argument. In other words, even those who are sincerely trying to make rational arguments about God are prone to the weakness of the human intellect. They can be misled by imagination, which always accompanies but can cloud or mislead proper thought, and they can conflate proper proofs with fallacious or merely probable reasoning. In context, Aquinas takes this as a rational argument, not a proof, but a probabilistic argument, evidence of fittingness or appropriateness, for the need for divine revelation. Since we can't achieve knowledge of God on our own, we need God to help us. Aquinas makes a similar argument in the Summa Theologiae, where he lists three ways in which philosophical knowledge of God is inadequate for us on its own, and so is appropriately supplemented by revealed knowledge. Even as regard those truths about God which human reason could have discovered, he says, it was necessary that man should be taught by a divine revelation, because the truth about God, such as reason could discover, would only be known by a few, and that, after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors. It was necessary, therefore, he says, that besides philosophical science built up by reason, there should be a sacred science learned through revelation. These observations defend a place for Christian theology as a revealed science, sacra doctrina, a kind of knowledge from God accessible to us by faith. Aquinas' attention to the frailties of reason is an invitation especially for those most eager to know by argument, to humility, docility, and openness. It is prudent, that is, reasonable, to look for help from the source of truth when we realize the limitations of our own powers to reach it on our own. So commenting on Job's self-mortification, Aquinas describes true humility as manifesting both courage and rationality. The mind stands upright when it is humbly submitted to God, for each thing exists to a higher and more noble state to the extent that it stands firm in what perfects it more. In another passage defending prophecy, Aquinas addresses the reasonableness of receiving God's own help in theology. Commenting on the Psalms, he says, prophecy is about these things, namely the uncertain and hidden things that are comprehended through your God's wisdom. In us, something is unknown in a twofold way, which nevertheless is known to God. Something is, something is unknown to us either on account of defect or on account of excess. Uh, 
on account of defect, something is unknown to us that reaches to the future because it, is not, because it does not yet have the truth determined. On account of excess, it is unknown to us, it is unknown to us the divine substance and that which exceeds our capacity. Knowing that Aquinas is a Christian theologian, we are not surprised that he would recommend a chastened view of reason open to the aids of grace. But Aquinas also thinks that apart from Christian faith and apart from speculative proof, it is possible to attain some awareness of and knowledge about God. We can distinguish three ways in which belief in God for Aquinas is reasonable. First, there is a sense in which awareness of God's existence comes to us naturally. Here's another passage from the Summa Theologiae. To know that God exists in a general and confused way is implanted in us by nature, inasmuch as God is man's beatitude or fulfillment or happiness. For man naturally desires happiness, and what is naturally desired by man must be naturally known to him. This, however, is not to know absolutely that God exists, just as to know that someone is approaching is not the same as to know that Peter is approaching, even though it is Peter who is approaching. For many there are who imagine that man's perfect good, which is happiness, consists in riches and others in pleasures and others in something else. So here Aquinas describes a general and confused kind of knowledge of God's existence implanted in us by nature, by which God is at least vaguely known as our last end, the ultimate final cause, that for the sake of which we choose all other things, in other words, happiness. Aquinas sometimes describes this way of knowing God as knowledge that is affective, having to do with the way we feel, rooted in an inclination or orientation of the will, as opposed to speculative, which is more properly rooted in the intellect. For instance, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he explains how John 17.25, the world has not known you, is consistent with Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. He explains how they're consistent by applying the distinction between speculative and affective knowledge. This affective knowing is a form of knowing, but it is not scientific. That is, it doesn't provide conclusive necessary proofs. Given our social nature, it is also appropriate that this natural affective knowledge be influenced not only by our direct experience, but by our relationship with others. So a second non-philosophical mode of coming to know God is through culture. Undoubtedly, society forms us. And we have also seen that Aquinas grasps that our intellectual commitments are subject to forms of persuasion short of demonstrative proof. The disciplines of dialectical inquiry, rhetoric, and poetics are concerned with assent based on inconclusive but nonetheless convincing modes of persuasion probabilistic argument, and persuasion through appeals to character, authority, and imagination. Aquinas understood that most people's beliefs about God were formed in a social environment other than philosophy class. Many modern thinkers have explicitly developed accounts of the rationality of tradition and the wisdom encoded in history and culture. John Henry Newman, Hans Georg Gadamer, and Alistair McIntyre, to name a few. Aristotle and Plato also shared a deference to local custom and the role of parents and common opinion in shaping belief. While these can be the means of God communicating the gift of faith, on the natural level, they can also be the means by which we as social beings come to know about the existence and nature of God. Nor would Aquinas have any reason to dismiss in their proper place arguments that essentially rest on pragmatic considerations of risk management, either in the existential spiritual mode of Blaise Pascal, it seems that our immortal happiness is at stake and we have nothing to lose by believing, or in the agnostic utilitarian mode of Nassim Nicholas Taleb, something as durable as religious belief must encode valuable information for social life somehow. Of course, none of these arguments are conclusive, and cultural influences on our natural or affective knowledge of God can just as well be harmful as helpful. One particularly dangerous cultural influence, for instance, takes the observation that religious belief can be socially habituated and draws from it an ideological hypothesis, really a myth, 
that religious belief is a purely human construct. The prevalence of religious belief across cultures and times, rather than counting as evidence that it contains some truth, thus becomes an excuse to explain it away as artificial and meaningless. Another danger is that our vague longing for happiness, which in principle orients us to God, can be clouded by a will misdirected to vicious and sinful objects. Indeed, Aquinas' occasional remarks about affective knowledge of God typically come in discussions of sin and vice. The implication is that a third mode of learning about God is the cultivation of virtue. For instance, addressing the vice of putting God to the test, effectively denying his goodness, Aquinas clarifies the ways one can seek confirmation of God's goodness. One way is by speculative, that is, philosophical argument, but the other is affective or experiential, by which a man experiences in himself the taste of God's sweetness and a taking pleasure in God's will. In defense of experiential knowledge, Aquinas even cites here the Christian Neoplatonist, Pseudo-Dionysius, from the Divine Names. He learned divine things through experience of them. Still later in the Summa, Aquinas describes how the vice of pride disorients our awareness of reality, while humility gives us a kind of wisdom. Pride indirectly keeps the mind from being open to truth, intellectually or speculatively, since it refuses subjection to an ultimate cause. But pride directly impedes our affective knowledge of truth because the proud, he says, through delighting in their own excellence, disdain the excellence of truth. Here he cites St. Gregory, the proud, although certain hidden truths be conveyed to their understanding, cannot realize their sweetness. And even if they know of them speculatively, they cannot relish them affectively. Aquinas also discusses other vices that corrupt reason, especially lust, which impedes contemplation, crowding out the refined pleasures of the intellect with the baser pleasures of the body. Related to pride and lust, another distinctive vice clouds our knowledge of God, intellectual intemperance or curiosity, a disorder in our desire for knowledge. Aquinas cites Augustine on how disordered desire for knowledge of creatures can lead one astray from God, and he cites Sirach on how misplaced desire to know about God beyond one's power can lead one astray. The virtue of rightly ordered intellectual appetite, studiositas, is a mean, a matter of seeking the right things in the right way in a manner appropriate to one's circumstances. So, the virtues of humility, chastity, and studiositas, all parts of temperance or rightly ordered desire, help one to be mindful of God, to know God, not philosophically, but we might say automatically or intuitively by inclination. Finally, we should mention another virtue, justice, specifically the part of justice that Aquinas calls religion, a habit of right service to God rooted in a recognition of our dependence on forces beyond our control, and so essentially related also to the virtue of piety. These then are three ways in which, in a Thomistic account, we can attain knowledge of God, or let us say awareness of God's existence, power, and goodness, before and without explicit philosophical proof and without the grace of Christian faith. They are what I'm calling normal paths to God in the sense that they are more common but less exact and certain than knowing about God by the intellectual work of philosophical argument or by the gift of supernatural faith in revealed doctrines. To summarize, there is a kind of inbuilt knowledge in us by our nature's very inclination to God. We can learn about God through enculturation, deference to otherwise people, respect for the authority of established social practices, practical reflection and common sense, and participation in the acts of a God-fearing community. And finally, we are better able to grasp God through moral formation. Temperance, courage, and justice orient us to wisdom. All of these testify to the reasonableness of theological belief, its conformity with our nature and with our own rational capacity to grasp this conformity. For Aquinas, our nature as organisms, 
as social beings and as moral agents gives us a chance to know God in a pre-theoretical, non-scientific way. All of this is a philosophical position, not a distinctively Christian one, about the reasonableness of theological belief. Plato, for instance, makes all of these same points in his dialogue, The Laws. But whereas for the pagan Plato, the prevalence of social and moral corruption, general impiety, placed a large and seemingly unsustainable burden on philosophy to purify and defend knowledge of God, for the Christian Aquinas, God himself has condescended to assist us, to heal us personally and socially through the gift of his grace through faith. Thanks to this revelation, the natural or affective knowledge of God can be strengthened by supernatural faith in divinely revealed truth. Philosophy can prepare for and support this grace, but even as Plato acknowledged, purely human exercise of reason is difficult, prone to error, and undemocratic even when successful. At this point, we can see that Aquinas and the classical tradition in general has much to say about the reasonableness of theological commitment apart from marshalling philosophical arguments about God's existence in nature. If you wonder and are open to God's existence, that wonder is itself a sign and a prompting, a stirring of your affective knowledge. How can we satisfy this desire? We can listen to traditional wisdom and not dismiss human sources of teaching about divine things. And we should be wary of misleading myths, theories, or ideologies that attribute religious belief to merely human origin. And given our corrupted human nature, we must avoid intemperate and unjust action, lust, pride, disordered attention, as vices that can cut us off from the wisdom we seek. So now the third main part of the paper, proofs and their uses. All of this helps put in perspective the role of explicit arguments about the existence and nature of God. Given the normal non-scientific ways of knowing God, is there a place for rational demonstrations leading to certainty? Can we prove the existence of God? Indeed, we can, but we should keep in mind that Thomas Aquinas thought this was fairly mundane work. To him, the proofs are intellectually easy, historically uncontroversial, and even something of a compromise. It was a plain matter of empirical fact for him that the existence of God can be and has been proven. And he found the best of philosophy in the Greek tradition to chart a middle path between treating God's existence as perfectly self-evident or conceptually inescapable, that is, not even in need of proof, and regarding it as something entirely exceeding human reason and so in no way capable of proof. Aquinas gives several arguments for the existence of God, not because it is hard and needs extra proof, but because it is easy and can be done in many different ways. All of Aquinas' arguments follow the same general inference, starting with some known effect and reasoning back to some primary cause. The proofs differ in starting with different kinds of effect, and so reasoning about different relevant modes of causality, and so each proof establishes the existence of a distinctive kind of cause. In the so-called first way of the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas proves the existence of an unmoved mover, that is, a first cause of change which is not itself subject to change. In the second way, he proves the existence of a first efficient cause, in the third way, he proves the existence of a source of necessity. And all of these first three ways could be said to be reaching back to God as a primal agent. But in his fourth way, Aquinas proves the existence of a highest paradigm, something most true and beautiful and good. In other words, what we might call a first formal or exemplar cause. And in the fifth way, he proves the existence of a source of order, implying intelligence, a final cause or purpose. A sixth proof, often considered the most challenging from Aquinas' treatise on being and essence, also demonstrates the existence of some kind of first cause. In this case, the observed effect is the distinction of every individual from its being or actuality, which implies some first being which has no such distinction, a being in which what it is and what is actualizing its existence are the same. A clear feature of these proofs, for those who follow them, is their certainty. 
They're valid and sound. They demonstrate their conclusions. And so they can inspire and confirm confident knowledge of God's existence. But are the proofs actually helpful to lead a non-believer to come to believe in God? Sometimes, yes, but not in every case. Those who are looking for God may be disappointed, as they could imagine that a proof for the existence of God will establish the existence of some all-powerful spiritual being, perfectly good and wise, deserving of worship, something or rather someone who rules as worthy Lord of the universe and to whom we have a duty to submit. Aquinas does make arguments to this effect, but it involves further philosophical reflection on the nature of that whose existence is demonstrated in the proofs. On the basis of the proofs themselves, we know almost nothing about this God except that it is the first in a chain of cause and effect. And given what we have said about non-philosophical factors in belief, we should not be surprised that human psychology allows even highly intelligent people to fail to accept or even to understand a proof for a first cause. For instance, if they do not recognize their own longing for God, if they have come under the influence of misleading cultural influences, or if they are oppressed by their own disordered habits. So if we want to convert doubters into confident believers, the apologetic use of proofs for God's existence, though real, may be limited. But the proofs have another benefit, their capacity to inspire wonder in those who already believe. Recall that for Aquinas, we technically cannot know God's nature as not just another intelligible being, but the pure source of intelligibility itself. God exceeds our reason. As Aquinas says, expanding on a remark from Aristotle's metaphysics, our soul's intellectual power is related to immaterial things, which by their nature are most knowable of all, as the eyes of owls are to the light of day, which they cannot see because their power of vision is weak, although they do see dimly lighted things. As from what it illuminates, even dimly, we can see indirectly that the sun is there and learn more about it, and even appreciate with greater understanding its blinding brilliance, so too we can learn about the divine nature and attain a greater and greater understanding of why it exceeds our comprehension by thinking towards it from what is more intellectually accessible to us. This begins with a better understanding of what we are even thinking about when we try to think about God. And this is a chief benefit of Aquinas' proofs. The conclusions of Aquinas' proofs give us a variety of clear characterizations of God. From the five ways we learn to conceive of God as first mover not subject to motion, first agent or efficient cause, an essentially necessary being, a most perfect being, an original governing intelligence. The conclusion of the proof from on being in essence invites us to conceive of God as lacking any composition, division, or complication, that in which the act of being is identical with what it is. To follow the proofs, one may begin with a conception of God that will be modified or clarified in the process of reaching and reflecting on the proof's conclusion. But one does not have to start a proof with any concept of God at all. The process of following the reasoning may itself elicit for the first time a sense of what one could mean by God and why that is so difficult to conceive. The proof of a first mover, for instance, does not prove but it provides the basis for separate arguments to prove that there is one God, that God is immaterial and eternal, that God is good, that God is alive and wise and just. Moreover, the proofs help to show how all of these truths could be related to and follow from conceptions of God that are much less familiar and far more speculative. For instance, that God is pure actuality or that God is absolute simplicity. The proofs then have the effect of purifying our conceptions of God, but this also means that they can spiritually purify our orientation to seek him. While a very basic wonder prompts us to pursue arguments, prov providing certainty that God is, the conclusions of those arguments themselves elicit further wonder about the God whose conclusions those conclusions describe. If we prove that there is a first mover, how wondrous is it to think that there is something that can generate change without undergoing any change itself? If there is an ultimate end or purpose, how marvelous is it that there is something that does not merely have goodness or beauty, but is goodness or beauty itself? If there is a first actualizer of being, how awe-inspiring is it 
that something could have no other nature than its own eternal actualizing. In this way, the philosophical demonstrations about God and God's nature serve not primarily to persuade others, although they can do that, but to purify and strengthen the soul for further contemplation in deeper wonder. So now for the conclusion. There is a common cultural myth, sometimes backed up with the alleged authority of philosophical history, that the existence of God is not something that can be known, or that if it can be known, it can only be known by an act of religious assent, faith, which is separate from and somehow less than what we usually mean by knowledge. Against the background of this assumption, many interpreters present Aquinas as holding that religious faith properly conceived is not merely a personal opinion or belief, but a kind of knowledge, and that the existence of God can be known with rational certainty through properly philosophical demonstrations. I have sought to show that Aquinas presents an even starker response to the common cultural myth. There are proofs for the existence of God, but they are not the only natural reasonable path to a genuine awareness of God's existence. The proofs may provide more certainty for those who are prepared to follow them, but they also, and more importantly, elicit greater wonder. Their conclusions articulate something about the unfathomable transcendence of God, and for those with the gift of Christian faith, they also deepen our appreciation for the miracle of the incarnation and the mysteries revealed about the divine nature in Christ. For Aquinas, knowledge of God is something that we don't exactly possess, but we receive and share in it. It is only perfectly possessed by God, and such knowledge as we can have from God is on loan from him. Here is Aquinas on genuine science of God. Such a science, he says, which is about God and first causes, either God alone has, or if not he alone, at least he has it in the highest degree. Indeed, he alone has it in a perfectly comprehensive way. And he has it in the highest degree inasmuch as it is also had by men in their own way, although it is not had by them as a human possession, but as something borrowed from him. In philosophical terms, there are logically sound proofs which provide us speculative certainty of God's existence. But now you can see why I did not want to make these the focus of a Thomistic account of faith reason, and reasonable belief. In human terms, even these proofs are gifts intended to strengthen us and confirm us in knowing something also knowable in other ways, purifying our minds and thereby inspiring us to participate in a higher and more perfect way in the divine life of our generous creator. The whole point of theological speculation is to accept and use God's help to get human beings to where they are designed by God to, to go, namely into deeper knowledge of God than unaided human nature and imperfect human society can accomplish. While we typically think of reasonableness in terms of our achieving knowledge, Aquinas highlights the role of God himself helping us to manage another important challenge of simply avoiding error. There is something Socratic about this, Rather than expecting us to construct knowledge, God assists us in purging our ignorance. But God is also like the muse or the divine voice of Socrates. Christian faith for Aquinas is not an alternative to knowledge, but a completion of it. Faith offers a kind of knowledge, which must be understood in relation to, although it cannot be reduced to, philosophical knowledge. The supernatural knowledge of faith is fully reasonable insofar as, only by receiving it can we hope to achieve our natural end, truly knowing God, our natural fulfillment as recognized, but never achievable by philosophical reason alone. Thank you very much. Sure. So if like <clears throat> mystic realism and objects really exist, kind of idea, is it fair to then Thomas Aquinas's way of viewing the world just to think of an object as having like a, an inexhaustible trail that leads back to God and therefore leads back infinitely. Because that means Thomas Aquinas pushed back on like an atomistic sort of view of the universe where we could find some, uh, there is like an object that exists 
Or is it always, or we're just going to continue to find, like we'll split an atom, we'll find the quarks, and we'll split that, get smaller and smaller, because ultimately it goes back into God. So there's some inexhaustible mark on creation that leads back to God and like something like an eternal return. Or is Thomas Aquinas really, like there are, it's, it's just a strange distinction between the unity of everything versus the multiplicity of everything and, and how do they fit together? Um. I'm, I'm hearing at least two different kinds of questions in what you're asking, right? Um, is Aquinas, would Aquinas accept a kind of atomistic view of nature, right? Um, and in a sense, he, like, we don't know how small we can split things, but Aristotle already knew that at a certain, that can't go on to infinity, right? So even if you want to say that you can keep splitting things to smaller and smaller, smaller particles, at a certain point, you're going to get the, 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 the most basic discrete way that something can be characterized. And if after you break that apart, you would be left with pure potency. Aristotle calls it prime matter, right? But, but either way, right? That shows that, that what's real is not the stuff that things are made of. It's not only the stuff that things are made of, but that to, to describe reality, you need to know the ways that that stuff is characterized. So that's, that's where the language of form or actualizing comes in, right? So, um, you know, we, we think that, um, uh, you know, the, the atom, right, is not actually uncuttable, but it's, it's, it's actually a, a way of smaller particles being, being actualized, some of them with a negative charge, so we call them electrons, but the electron turns out itself to be made of other smaller stuff, right? But to understand an atom, you, you need to know what it's made of, but you also need to know the arrangement, the, the, the formal characterization of those parts. That's one of the questions that I hear you asking, right? And, and it's why, why an Aristotelian is not a strict materialist, even recognizing that the physical world is made of matter. The physical world's explanation can't be reduced to matter because there's something else, right? The other question I hear you asking is when, when we're tracing the, back the causes of things, um, are, are we only tracing them back into smaller parts or are we tracing them back in time? And um, we can do both of those things, but Aquinas and Aristotle both think that we also, we, we, we trace things back in terms of their immediately present causal dependence. So, so the cause of the being of something, right, is not just something that used to exist and then sort of let it hang around. But the, the fact that something exists right now is a sign that it is receiving its being from something that's passing being onto it, not in the past. So you, you, don't have, you don't have the deist God who sets the world in motion and then fades into the background. But the argument for the prime mover, for instance, is not an argument that at some point in time in the past, something must have gotten things going. No, it's that the very fact that I can turn on the lights in this room right now means that there is an original source of energy right now that, it, that itself doesn't receive from anything else, right? Yeah, but I guess the prime matter then, what is prime matter? In, uh... Thomas Aquinas takes Aristotle's prime matter, and how does he explain what that, what that Well, I mean, I don't know if I'll be able to satisfy you because prime matter, like God, can't properly be conceived, but because it's at the other end of the spectrum, right? God is pure actuality, and we have finite intellects that can only grasp finite actualities. So we cannot conceive of God. Prime matter is pure potential potentiality. It has no actuality at all. So you ask, what is it? It is not anything, except it could be something. Is there any association where Mary is kind of somewhat somehow associated with prime matter? As like the divine potentiality. Or will God manifest himself to us and Mary or something? I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, that may be a question that's just too weird. I think that I think that would be. Um, a little bit misleading to try to find an analogy between Mary and prime matter. Um, the the, the pr prime matter is um, what's left over after you strip all the actuality off of something. So so when you but when you say, "Well, so I want to know what that is," it isn't anything anymore. It, 
It is. It, it could be something, but it is not yet something, right? Prime, prime matter is to the first grade of actuality as wood is to this, right? You can get, you can get there analogically. You can, you can think that it's the, it's the, it's the fourth term in that analogy, but you, you can't act, you can't have a proper concept of it because your proper concept of it would be a concept of it being some way and it's not actually in any way. It's only potentially. But, but I mean, Mary is, uh, is receptive, right? Um, and so in that way, she is a potency, but she is receptive because she is actually more fully human than those of us who were born with original sin, right? So her potency to be the vessel for the incarnation is itself a potency dependent on a higher grade of actuality than the rest of us have. Um, that's why I don't want to quite compare her to prime matter because she's, you know, we're, we're, we're farther away from pure actuality than, than she is. But that's, that's another reason why prime matter or pure potency is an odd, uh, an odd thing for us to try to think about because every other potency we, we, we can conceive of is a potency in something that, that has that potency because it already has an actuality. Right. I, I look at the lumber and I think I could make a, a table out of that. Right. That it's in potency to being a table. It's not yet a table, but it, it's the kind of thing that could be a table because it is wood. Right. It's not nothing. And if it were water, I couldn't turn it into a table. Right. Maybe I could freeze it and carve it into a temporary table. Right. But mo most things, when we talk about them having a potency, they have a potency because they have an already determined actuality, which is the point I was making with Mary. And, and prime matter doesn't have that. Doesn't have that. Um, so when we talk about natural theology and yep. ability to arrive at something, we know something about God. I've heard it sometimes say we can know a thin slice of God. You can write at something like prime mover or something like that. Is there a hope in Thomism to maybe find a thicker slice of God? Are, are we stuck with with these few thin slices? We hear all the time about Aristotle's prime mover and and these things. Now I'm specifically thinking of uh, Norris Clark. I think it's at the end of Person and Being where he arrives at he arrives at God as love, which strikes me as a very thick slice of God. Um, strikes me as a, uh, well, certainly reveal that God is love. So that was a phenomenal achievement in philosophy to arrive at that point, but I've never heard anybody expound farther on that or even quote uh, Father Clark. So I don't know, what, what do you think of the promises of natural theology to know more? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I didn't spell uh, this out so much in the, in the talk, but um, that's what I was trying to get at by saying that it inspires us to wonder and deepen our wisdom. So by, by getting some, some, if you want to call it a slice, right? By reflecting on that, it, it can become, it can become something that contains more and more and more, right? Um, yes, from, from learning that God is the unmoved mover, which originally sounds like a very boring, non-religious claim, right? Something out of physics, right? A cosmologist might say that there's an unmoved mover. It's the big bang or something like that. But when, then you start to reflect on it, what would something have to be such that it caused motion, but isn't subject to motion. So it, it would have to have no potentiality in it. There would have to be no, no way in which it could be differently than it is, or else it would be subject to motion, right? So it can't, it can't have any potentiality in it. Well, now all of a sudden I know that it can't be a material being because anything material has uh, a size and could be bigger or smaller, has a location, so it could be somewhere else, it has a shape, so I could change its shape, right? So, so materiality always implies potentiality. If the unmoved mover can't have potentiality, it can't have immaterial, it can't have materiality. So now, now I know that what I start, started out sounding like a really boring claim, the unmoved mover. Now I know it's an immaterial being. Well, but, but it's not immaterial in the sense that it's like, you know, just invisible or the ether or something like that. It's, it's, it's real. It's more actual than anything else. It's, it actually has to be alive. It has to have, it has to have life to it. 
It has to have an intellect. It has to have a will. I'm not giving all the arguments for these things, but that's how Norris Clark gets to uh, God is love. I actually think you can find a version of the God is love in Aristotle's metaphysics because he says God is the, j just as God is, is thought thinking itself, right? He's also, God is also the ultimate end. So he's, he's a will willing himself. So he, he is, he is, um, oriented towards, he, he, he is the ultimate object of every other love, but, but that's because he is the ultimate source of every other love. Um, Aristotle doesn't put it quite that way, but, but the argue, all the, all the premises for that argument are there in the metaphysics. So yes, that's what the, the proofs for the existence of God give you like a foothold, but then the rest of natural theology helps you explore um, and, and reach beyond what that original foothold gave you so that you, you actually do learn quite a bit about God. And when I teach, when I teach metaphysics to, um, to seminary students, right? So I'm not even doing natural theology. I'm not teaching the Summa. I'm reading Aristotle's metaphysics, but I tell my seminarians that if, 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 if I do it right, that it should help them pray. Um, that, that in Aristotle, I, with Aquinas, I think Aristotle was helping us understand the divine nature, not comprehend it, but grow in, and, and deepen our understanding of the divine nature. And if that's the case, it should have an impact on, on your own, what goes on in your own mind when you're trying to turn your attention to God. Uh, now, partly that might be a matter of personality too. I'm sure I have students who find it harder to pray after they take metaphysics with me. Uh, but, but I've had enough students who said that, that, that it has had that effect. Um, and I think that's, I think that's what Aquinas expects from his, um, uh, natural theology. Um, not so much trying to take you from a position of ignorance to certainty, but take you from a position of, uh, uh, a kind of immature or raw wonder to a deeper level of wonder. Um, that 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 you that wasn't available to you before you had thought that much about what God must be. I can't remember the exact quote you used that you talked about um, how a a disordered um, desire to understand God can actually be detrimental to sure. um, us. And I, don't, I guess it's not really a question, but just I guess could you expound upon that? Could you kind of talk about that a little bit more um, and what made that. What could that look like in someone's life? I guess is kind of what I'm. Doing. I mean, I think it could take it could take many different forms. This is the this is the thing with vice, right? Virtue virtue is you know getting it just right, and then vice is like failing in any other direction, right? So you know if if you were if you were trying to learn about God because you know you wanted to impress your friends or because you wanted to prove that some other guy was an idiot or because you uh, because you thought that by knowing about God you could finally you know I don't know get over get over I, I'm trying to come up with examples of, of um, impure motives off the top of my head right the, the idea of the desire being disordered is is that it it, it would be ordered towards something other than, what authentic human happiness is, which is truly knowing God. So you could be studying theology, you could be trying to get everything right because you're trying to win a book award or, or because you're, um, you know, because you're angry at God and you want to show him that you know everything you can know about. It. So, so those, those could actually, they could in, in a sense inspire one to, to go through the motions of theological research in a way, but they, they would almost guarantee that you would be failing or missing something um, and that that it would it would manifest it would manifest itself as a failure um you talked about the normal knowledge of god what people can come of god either through like the culture and their parents through virtue and then lastly through the person those kind of three different means correct right and so through 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 the the affective or natural inclination to God, through uh, social influences, 
right, and through virtue. Would you say that Thomas puts any preference on one of those? I only ask that because would you say or agree that through virtue you're also inclining yourself into those others? Like through virtue, I would be able to prudently, you know, uh, understand the culture or in something of that measure. I mean, I think it makes sense to present them in that order in that the one one is based on your um just sort of your almost your animal nature, right? The other based on the fact that you um you you can't survive as an animal except as a social animal. And and the last because it's specifically moral. But obviously they they bleed into each other, right? And so, yes, the perfecting the virtue also helps you participate in the social activities that can contribute to reinforcing belief and can, and, and those social activities help to actually cultivate the, the affect of desire. And in a vicious enough culture, right, there won't be the social activities that reinforce belief and the affect of desire could, could be misdirected or atrophied. Um, but so I, I think they make sense in that order as building on each other, but it, again, it's not as if you experience them in that order, right? You, you might not be aware of belief in God, except insofar as your parents made you pray every night before you went to bed, um, or except insofar as, um, you know, you, you just, you noticed your whole culture instilling this belief in you.